Well, shall we pray? While we come before you, we do give you thanks for so great a salvation. And we thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come again tonight that he might be exalted, that he might be honored because we've met together. We thank you for that great promise that you give that when we gathered together in your name, for your sake, you gathered together with us. We thank you for your presence tonight. We thank you for the Spirit of God here tonight to illumine your word, to bring it to our hearts, and then to strengthen us to believe and to live in it. So we're coming and asking you to meet with us in a manifest way as we fellowship together and teach us of yourself and draw us into that life of faith. We come and trust you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 tonight. Colossians chapter 1. So while you're turning there, I'll remind you where we were last week. We were thinking at the very beginning, I asked you a question. What do you think heaven's going to be like? What do you think it's going to be like to be in that place? And we thought about that last week. We're not going on with that. Tonight I want to ask you maybe more practical or a more immediately important question. What does it mean to be mature in the Christian life? What does it mean? What does a mature person look like? Uh, This is a question which has been debated right down through the histories of uh, the history of the church. There were men in the second century who sat on top of posts, on a little platform on top of a post, holy men. They were regarded as saintly men. That sort of limits um, how many people can be saintly because they had to have everything supplied to them. If we all get up on the post, we starve to death, all right? Because there's nobody left to bring it to us. Point is that a question has come up over and over again throughout church history. What does it mean to really be mature? What are the heights that God has for a person who's been born again? Once they've come to know him, where can he take them? What can he do with them? How far can they go? That's a big question. Now, it's an important question for us, too, because... um, If you've been born again, if you've come to know God, you have a drive which moves you towards that. I doubt whether there are very many homes. Whoa. I've been illumined. All right. Now, anyway, that's okay. Um, I bet there aren't a lot of homes that have children that don't have somewhere in that home a dedicated uh, door jam or wall with little marks and dates. They're dates of, you know, when we were this big, and then we were this big, and this were this big. And I remember as a kid going to that, you know, you go to that place and just hoping that this time it's going to be taller, right? It's going to be taller. Why? Because I don't want to be short anymore. You remember that being little? You look up at everybody and you're happy in one sense, but in another sense, I want to be big like them. Right? And that, that doesn't go away. You just get, the bigger you get, the more you want to get there. You want to be, you don't want to be left out. You remember when you were a little kid, you were left out because you're too little? I hated that. I hated being left out because you're too little. I want to be bigger. I want to grow. I wanted to grow intellectually. I wanted to grow physically, mostly physically. You know, <laughs> a little kid. You know, I want to be stronger than I was. You see, the very fact that you have life in you that has a drive to it, it moves you that direction. That's part of living. If you didn't have that, 
Yeah, there are the Peter Pan types, but anyway, they're very rare. Who wants to be 12 for the rest of eternity? I mean, that, you know, that's, that's a terrible age to be stuck at. All right? But, every, but the point is this, that we have that drive. Well, something happened to every one of us. You see, we started off with this. We had, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says about us. Then something happened to us. What happened? Spirit of God came to us, right? And when the Spirit of God came to us, he told us that you are not right with God. And there's nothing you can do about it. You've sinned against God and you've ruined your own nature. But there is nothing you can do to change that nature or to wipe out that guilt. Nothing. Now, for some, it took longer than others to get that across to you. But if you've come to know him, you had that experience. And then what took place? And there came a day when he said, now the answer to that is that God has taken care of it. Because of the great love of God, he made it possible for you to come But it won't be because of anything you are. It will be because of who Jesus Christ is. And you came, and in repentance and faith, you entrusted yourself into the hands of Jesus Christ. Okay? At that moment, a wonderful thing takes place. That guilt's wiped out. It's, It's put away. But something else happened at that time. You were born again of the Spirit of God. You were born again. Life came in. Paul tells us that because of what Jesus does when he comes in, you're dead to sin, but you're now alive to God. And that alive to God isn't just that now you can communicate. You have a life. You're sharing with God. This is tremendous. It's the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in a man, in a woman. That life will immediately begin to manifest itself in a desire to grow. It just does. If you don't have a desire to grow, you're dead. That's all I can say. You're just dead. It isn't there. With that life is a force towards growth. Now, that, that is a good thing. That's a good thing. But it also can become a trap. I mean, not a trap in the desire. But if I am going to actually grow... I have to know the answer to two questions. If I'm, if I'm going to do it accurately, and what are those two questions? Well, they're on your paper there. The first is this. What is maturity? What does it mean to me be mature? And then the second question is this. How do I get there? All right. Where, have I, where am I going in the first place? But then how do I get there? Now, I ask those two questions, or we have those two questions in front of us, because we're talking about a prayer that occurs in the book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians was written to a church which was having problems along these very lines. The indication is that when, again, Paul did not establish that church, it was established by a disciple of Paul's who went to Colossae and establishes this church. They've come... They understand the gospel. They've understood that there's nothing they can do to get into Christ, that they are going to have to come and receive salvation from the Lord. So they they seem to be real clear on that part. But then the question comes, now that I have become a Christian, how will I get to the heights? And there was all kinds of people were coming in and telling them, this is the route, this is the route, this is the route, this is the route. Now, just to sum it up real quickly, what the main problem is, is this. They were telling them 
that Jesus was a good way to start your Christian life, but if you want to get to the heights of what God has for you, you have to move past him. You have to move past him to special wisdom that you can get over here. You need to you need to move past him to personal discipline. If you get enough personal discipline, then you can get there. You need to move past him to... Uh, some of them were Old Testament laws, keeping Old Testament laws, keeping Old Testament ceremonies. All these things were presented as ways to get to maturity because there's a desire to be mature. Paul addresses that in the book of Colossians. He's addressing how is it that we get to maturity? What is maturity? Now, the how we get there, I want to put it at the very beginning. This is kind of putting it all out before I start, and that's kind of cheating, isn't it? You know, you're supposed to work through the end. But anyway... But if anybody falls asleep, I just want to make sure you hear this one. You came to Christ. You came into the kingdom by trusting Jesus Christ. You grow in the kingdom by trusting Jesus Christ. Right? As you received him, you've got to walk in him. There's nothing you could do to get in. And there's nothing that comes out of me that can make me grow. I have to come to him to receive salvation in the first place. I have to come to him to receive salvation sanctification on the progression, okay? So it, it all comes from the Lord. That's what he's going to say in the, in the book. Now, in order to get that across, Paul prays a prayer for the Colossian church, all right? He says that this particularly is what he has in mind for that group of people, all right? And so I want to read that prayer tonight, and we want to think about it. I will say right up front as we get ready to read this, that there is no way that we can detail out this prayer in one night. It's a very complex prayer. It's a detailed prayer. It has a lot of, of, of points to it. And all we want to do is kind of survey, but we want to see the direction he's going. So it's in, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that's his, their love and their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, it is kind of a complex passage, but let me just uh, say that um, it, it comes in three dimensions. He is going to describe Christian maturity three times. He's going to pray for it, but he's going to describe it three times, right? There's a progression here. At the beginning, he has this essence of the prayer. And the essence of the prayer is that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is a mature person. A mature Christian is one who is filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But he prays that, he says, so that something else will happen. So he describes it again. So that... He says, when you have this experience of being filled with the knowledge of, of his will, then you will do this. You will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect. That's his second description of them. 
That make sense? So now he's going to, he's amplifying what happens when this is, when that knowledge is there, when it's dominating, what will take place? Well, this is what will take place. You'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and you'll please him in all respects. But then he goes back to the, this is Paul. I love his sentence. This is all one sentence. All right. It's all one sentence. A little hard to kind of chop up. But then he goes back again. He says, so that you have to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you will walk worthy, so that you will, and then he comes with four things. There are four things he says, so that you will bear fruit in every good work, so that you will increase in the knowledge of God, so that you will be strengthened to be steadfast in your life, and then finally that you will joyously give thanks. There's the prayer. Now we can go home, right? It's all you've got to clear. Now, what does that all say? What is, what's going on here? What, what is he talking about? Why does he pray this way? Well, first thing, again, we're, we're trying to learn a little bit about what it means to pray without ceasing from Paul. And we have been thinking primarily about prayers which kind of come off his heart as he's writing. They, are just, they just seem to be part of what he's saying along the way. This prayer is not kind of like that. It says, when I heard about your faith, all right, and your love. He's, he's indicating that when I heard that, I knew God was at work. And that should be part of what we're always doing, watching around us for where is God at work? What is he already doing? How can we participate in what he's already doing? He says, I saw that. So now he's going to, he's also seeing, because he's going to address them in the book about their their problems with doctrine, he also sees the problems that they're facing. And so Paul now thinks, how can I pray? And you can almost see him sitting down here. That's the way I, I guess I got this in my mind. Now he's in prison. He's got lots of time to sit. You know, you got him in prison. He's thinking back over all this. What has to take place to get this group of people into the maturity that they long for. That's what they're already after because the Spirit of God's at work. They want to go there, but what is in the way and what must I ask for in order that that might be so? It's a very thoughtful prayer. I think we, we downplay the idea of thoughtfulness in prayer a lot. If we thought a little bit more before we prayed, we might get a little farther in the prayer. I think if we spent more time preparing to pray, it does take time to think through what situation am I facing and what has to happen in that situation. If we took more time there, we could shorten our prayer time way down because then we would know what we really wanted to get. What are, what are we really after? And Paul's, he's got it down. It's, it's not a long prayer. But the indication, the way he puts it here, the way he writes it, the indication is that he figured this is what I'm going to pray for and I'm going to pray for today and tomorrow and the next day, and every day I think of you guys, I'm going to pray this for you. Why is he going to do it that way? Why not vary the prayer? Because this is what has to happen in their life. And there's no sense in going somewhere else if this doesn't take place. So he's, he's thought it all through. So what is the prayer? What is the prayer that he is making there? Well, let's start off here and just go right through it <clears throat> again. Because we've got a limited time, I want to just kind of, again, go through the words. 
All right, here's the way it comes up. Let's go back to the first section, the essential element of the prayer. What is it? For this reason, he says that since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I have four words listed there. I want to include a fifth one. Uh, the first word is filled. I want you to be filled. All right. Now, let's, let's be clear. Let's get to this one. This is a prayer. Paul knows that they have to grow and they're going to have, be up against problems in, in that growth. They're going to have, the enemy is already putting wrong things in front of them. So where does he go? He goes to God and asks him. A big part of Paul's life. Here's a, here's a man who was a master teacher of the word of God. And yet, before he ever starts teaching them about what they can do and how they need to rearrange their thinking in order to grow, he's going to pray for them first. Because there's only one person who can change you. And that's the spirit of God. No teacher can do it. We can bring the Word of God, but our hope as we bring the Word of God, if we're going to do it accurately, is that we are simply, this is, I tell people this when they learn how to teach. All I'm doing when I'm teaching the Word of God is handing the sword to the Spirit of God to do His work. This is what does the work. And Paul's going to go there because the Spirit of God has to do it. The Spirit of God has to bring His past, Okay. So here's what his prayer is. First word is, he wants them to be filled. All right, filled. We've already thought a little bit about some of these words before. What does it mean to be filled? Well, on your paper, it says dominated. All right, dominated. I want you to turn that. Something that controls. The idea to fill has to do with something which isn't everything you think, but it controls the way other thoughts are formed. So that, as we have said before, this is just a repeat there, but if a person is filled with confidence, if I got up here filled with confidence, my experience when I'm up here would be different, even though we have them using the same notes, as if I got up here filled with fear. Right? What dominates my inner man is going to dictate a great deal about how I will perform up here. If I am filled with joy when I get up here, your experience would be different than if I am filled with sadness when I am up here. The fill just means that there is an inward attitude of heart, something which controls me, something which dominates my thinking. It's not all of my thinking, but it, it shapes how I think about other circumstances. He wants these people to be filled with something. Now, we've been over that before, so I'm not going to spend a long time there. But what is it that they need to be filled with? They need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, that's God's will. God's purpose. Now, um, we did say this a couple weeks ago again, and I want to again repeat this. The will of God can be seen in a number of different ways. I could think about, again, the most typical way that people want to know about the will of God is what's the will of God for me? Should I, should I get, have a, this is the most common question I've been asked over 50 years. Should I get married or not? All right. Is this the right one? How do I know? They want to know about the will of God. It has to do with their personal life. 
and what they're going to do with that person's life. Um, the ones above that, then they want to know whether they should be a missionary or be this or what, what should I do? Where should I live? What's, that's, that is the will of God for you, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. All right. A second level of the, the will of God, this is the will of God. I wanted to say that, that this, this book is the will of God. You want to know what God wants you to do? There it is. All right. And although I do believe in subjective guidance, I do believe in it. I believe it's biblical. I also believe that 99% of what you need to know is right here. If you do all these things, if you follow what God tells you, if you are dominated by the Word of God, then you'll make the right decisions in the other places, I believe. And when the need comes for Him to give subjective guidance, you'll get it. All right? So this is the will of God. This is a description of, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. It's not just that. It will come out of this. But Paul has a, has a bigger thought in mind here. What is God's great purpose? What's going on on the earth tonight? What is happening? He wants you and he wants me to be filled with an understanding of what he is doing. This earth belongs to the Lord. He made it. There's one thing that's absolutely clear in the Word of God. All things were made by Him, and everything was made for Him. The life that I have is really not mine, even outside of Christ, because I have life because God created it with a purpose. If I want to, I can steal that life from him, but I'll pay a price for stealing that life. It belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. Right from the very beginning, he had a purpose in mind, and he describes that in the next uh, part, or in chapter 1, a little bit later, after he prays here, he describes something of what that purpose is. Let me read just a few verses, which come right after the prayer, in which Paul is telling us, this is what God's great purpose is, all right? Um, in verse 15, he's, he's exalting the Lord Jesus. After he says that he, re, he has redeemed us, he says in verse 15, he is, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and Here's part of the will of God. Everything was created, what? For him. It all belongs to him. That, that begins to shape it. Now it comes on down here to the, the church. And after he says that for him, well, let's just read straight through here. Um, <clears throat> uh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And here comes a very important point so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Right? That's the will of God. You see, that doesn't have specifically to do with my life, but on the other hand, once we use the word will, this is the purpose of God, and if I was created for the purpose of God, then I have to know that in this great purpose, that Jesus Christ should come to have first place in everything, I'm included. Which means, of course, that if I want to, if I want to understand what's going on in my life, if I want to be filled with the knowledge of His will, then I have to understand that 
it is the will of God the Father that Jesus Christ come to have first place in me. Right? I have to be dominated by that. Now, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, states pretty much the same thing. I just want to note this because, again, some could question, is that really what's, what's the thought here? But since it's in the context, we'll be there. The book of Ephesians is written on the same outline of the book of Colossians. I told you I was going to go through these things chronologically, but at this point, when it comes to Colossians, Philippians, and, and Ephesians, who knows which one's first and second and third. Now, it's my, my own thought, which may or may not be right, so just, this is just my own thought, that Paul wrote out, first of all, the book of, of Colossians. It's to answer a question for the church of Colossae. He then took that same outline and developed a very formal book, the book of Ephesians, on how the church works, what God's purpose is for the church, a much more formal and polished work. I believe the book of Philippians was last because it seems like he's almost ready to get out of prison at that particular point. Am I right? I don't know. I don't know. But that's why we're going to go about it. But Ephesians and Colossians, there's no question here that between these two books, they, they're following the same pattern. They have the same outline. In the first part of the book of, of Ephesians, in the first chapter, Paul tells us how great our salvation is, the plan of God. He describes it in verses 4 through 14 or 13. He's going through here and he's describing this great salvation that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he describes how it starts way back before the foundations of the earth. And it goes all the way to the time when Jesus Christ is exalted. And in the middle of it, as he's going through there, and I'm going to read from the ESV tonight uh, in this section, only because it's just a whole lot easier to understand than the way the New American Standard writes it, so I don't have to do so much explaining. All right, we get down here in um, verse 7. He's talking about the Lord. This is chapter Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, In him, that's in the Lord, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, we have to get that because the whole thing's one sentence. You have to get the momentum here. So that's, he's talking about what he does in, in redeeming us according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And it says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things united in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the plan of God. And he said that here is the grace of God, that you're not in the dark about that. That when he pr brings a man out of the kingdom of darkness, he, he brings you into his own kingdom, he lets us know what's going on. We are not just saved out of, from our sin, and now we're set over here and just go your own way, and I'll go and save other people. We are now brought into a place where in his wisdom... He makes known to us what he's doing on the earth. Now, that doesn't mean I know everything that he's doing on the earth, but I know what the plan is. And what is the plan? That he's going to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. That tonight, a church is being built, which one day will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, that's, that's not unique to our age. 
that started at Pentecost, and that is continuing right on through until whatever that last day is, when God has finished it and the last of the believers is brought into the kingdom and he's finished with the church and then he closes out time and the judgments come and everything changes on this earth. That's the plan of God. This is the will of God. When you were converted, you were brought into that will. When I was converted, I was brought into that will. Isn't that amazing? The God doesn't just let us sit back here and watch He brings us into it. That is the one thing that really matters about the earth tonight. That is the only thing that really matters. The rest of what's taking place in kingdoms, in educational institutions, in all of the artwork of this, it is all coming and going. The music, the... The great books that have been written. Again, if you want to read them, read them now. They won't be in the libraries in heaven. That's what, that's why I understand it from the book of Daniel. Remember when Daniel, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know what's going to happen in the future, <laughs> and he sees this great big image, right? And he has this dream, and he gets, the angel comes and interprets it to him. What's going on here? And he says, "You're the head of gold." And all these kingdoms are going to come and all this this greatness is going to come out of who you are and it's all the way down to the end days. But then at the end of it, what happens? A little rock rolls down and it smashes that image. That image is talking about the course of human history. And it's not remade. It is smashed, obliterated, and gone. There's going to be a day when the United States will be completely forgotten forever. Got it? And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about the United States or any other position on this earth. The Roman Empire will not be talked about because the only thing that really mattered in all this history, the only thing that really matters tonight is a church is being built to the glory of Jesus Christ. And once he's been glorified, the rest is just smashed and out of the way. That's what's happening. That's why, isn't it wonderful to note that right now, while we are talking, and this is, you know, I don't have insight. I don't get the, uh, I don't get updates from heaven on how things are going. But I believe that right now, because it just, I believe it's the way it works out, that somewhere on this earth, right at this moment, someone is passing from death to life. And we think about God being involved in the nations and the course of the nations and all the rest. There's nothing like what it says about this situation. I don't know when you passed from death to life, but it was a moment when you did. If you come to know him at all, there was a moment when you did. And at that moment, it says this, there was joy in the presence of the angels. Not joy from the angels, joy in the presence of the angels. They saw, and it's hard, this is is really putting, uh, I'll get in trouble theologically here, but it kind of lights up God's heart. They saw it. See, he's rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Because the kingdom is being built and one person has been snatched from the burning. That matters. And what happens in Washington does not matter. What happens in state governments doesn't matter. 
what happens in the conflicts between nations on this earth. Wars and rumors of war, they're going to come. That's what he said. But in the midst of it all, while it's happening, in places all over this all over this earth, people are coming into the kingdom, and that matters. And at the same time, tonight, and this is, I mean, this should this thrill, should thrill us all. We can sit here together, meditate on the Word of God in the presence of God, and something can happen for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we meet together in this auditorium over the last fifty years. An awful lot of people have passed from darkness to light. They've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's important. That's important. Okay? What happens in the, the buildings, the buildings are going to go away. Right? They'll go away. This is just a spot. All right? This is a spot. It's a place on the earth. It's one of the remote parts of the earth. But there the kingdom of God's come. Now, why do we say all that? Paul wants you to be filled up with an understanding of what God is doing. Which so fills you that you understand where you fit in that. Why does he want you to have that? He wants you to have that, and we have to go very rapidly here, with a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I wonder how many decisions you made today. How many choices did you make? Isn't that, that's incredible to think about, isn't it? Time you got up, you know, are you going to make your coffee now or later? You know, and it starts then, and you, you, you're going to sit in that chair, you're going to sit in this chair. You're gonna, you know, what are you going to do today? You chose all kinds of things. Now, the wisdom and, and insight, and all spiritual wisdom and insight, simply has to do with the fact that Paul realizes that people make decisions. Wisdom, again, this is often used, often stated, it's not mine, is the ability to use the best means to get to the right end. All right? That's what wisdom is. Now, that is achieved by knowing what the right end is. And Paul wants you to know what's going on on the earth that really counts so that you'll know what the right end is. In our lives, in, in what we do on this earth, it, some, it matters. It matters. What's the right end? We're all going to get to some end. What's the right one? And then the wisdom comes in. He says, all wisdom. That means every kind of wisdom. I I like that part, that it's every kind of wisdom. Because it's the wisdom to know how to eat. And it's also the wisdom to know how to take care of your kids. It's also the wisdom to know how to counsel this person who's in trouble. And it's also the wisdom to know how to get on with your wife and and, and get on with your husband and get on with... It's it's wisdom which gives you the ability to make the right decisions in every circumstance. And it, it, it covers everything. That's great. All the little things, all the big things. But he wants you to have this. So here's, here's his thought, that that would be so. Now, again, that's the essence of the prayer, that you would be filled, dominated by an understanding of the will of God in such a way that you're making right decisions. Okay, now, he, so that. Okay, that's, that's a, now he moves to another level. He's going to kind of expand that thought. So that you will do what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We've already gone over the word worthy because it's come up. Paul likes the word. He likes to talk about the Christian life and put the pressure on us by saying that the Christian, the life we have to live has to be worthy of the Lord. You can put it worthy of your calling, but he's worthy. And what does that mean? Well, again, if you've been here, it means something that matches in weight something else. 
Something that matches in value. After all, I have been snatched from the burning. The eternal God came and paid a price on the cross of Calvary for me. Then in 1968, he took me to Furman University and came and got me. <laughs> Mr. Johnson was there uh, to help along the way, and other people were along the way. And then I met Mr. Carroll, and I began to hear the word of God, because he's come to get me. And he brought me to himself, and he wiped out all of the guilt, and I had a good bit of it back there. He wiped it all out and cleansed me and gave me new life. All right? And now he is in the process, because he promised that once he started that, he's going to jump me there. He's going to finish out his work. He's in the process of purifying that so I can endure or enjoy an eternity of blessing with him. That's the course. I'm rich beyond measure. So are all of you. I'm not trying to exclude everybody else. I'm just saying it. What Paul says is this. What I am today ought to reflect all of that. It ought to reflect the fact that I have been completely forgiven and, be, and been given a brand new life. It ought to reflect the matter that inside of my being is the living Christ. That I've come to a place where the, the power of my life is resurrection power. That's true for all of us, right? Our lives, in the way we approach them, ought to reflect the fact that we're only going to be here for a few minutes and we have an eternity ahead, which is unbelievable. You see, the value judgments that I make have to reflect the greatness of my salvation. And Paul's he's really big on this. That, that it, it, they have to match. He's very disturbed when they don't match. They don't begin to match. He's got the idea. So what's... What does he want to do? So he says that when you understand the will of God, then you'll begin to make those value judgments which will match up to who you are and what's really going on that counts. You will understand what makes the difference, okay? So that's, that's the first part. Then he says this. He looks at it a different route, okay? Because that can get very heavy. You know, I have to be this. This is what I have to be. Uh, I don't know if I can make it. But he says that, that you should um, have that, then you should please him in all respects. You should please him in all respects. This is a very personal um, picture. It pictures you as being a person who is right beside some other person and you are watching their response and doing things so that they will have a positive response. How about that? William Hendrickson is one of my favorite authors to go to when I'm trying to sort out what passages mean. He's very formal most of the time, but he's coming down here and he's looking at this, and um, he said this about him. He said, this, this really means, it comes down to this, that a person who does this delights to delight the Lord. He delights to delight. That is not William Hendrickson's typical vocabulary. But you see, you got a person there, and it is the delight. He says, if you understand this, it becomes the delight of your heart when he's delighted. Why? Because he's the one that's going to be glorified. So that's the second way he looks at the life. So what is it? It's one in which I live 
to please or live in order that my life might be parallel to the greatness of what God's done for me. The second thing is that I might live in a way. I think, what will please him? What will please him? See, I have to get up here tonight and talk. And, and you know, I, I get nervous about this sometimes in this respect. I'm going to give account for every word. The right now while I'm talking to you, the living Christ is present listening to me. Am I getting it right? Am I telling you what he said? Am I telling it to you the way he said it? I represent him. I claim to do that. I'm saying that this is what the word of God says. Is it true? I'm gonna... So I have to kind of, if you want to say, what does that mean? It means this. And I want to think a long time and pray a long time before I get up here to speak so that what I say pleases the one I'm speaking about. I'm not rip- misrepresenting him. I'm not downplaying things I should be upplaying. I'm not passing by things I shouldn't, but I'm not put piling on weights that I shouldn't be that I am reflecting his heart because he is a particularly wonderful being. I have to look like him. I have to please him in those respects. Okay, you got the idea. Uh, so that's the second way. We have to go fast. Right? I told you we're going to go fast. Then he gets a little more detailed. What does a mature Christian look like? What is Christian maturity? And in this last step, he tells you. The first thing I want you to note about the Christian maturity here is that it's an ongoing experience. It is not a, a state of being. It's not an achievement. You don't become mature and now you're mature. All of the descriptions of maturity are descriptions of growth, which is, you get it's way, way you have in, in um, just the natural world. There are people who, we're talking about just, we're not talking about Christians here. We're just talking about people in general who got to be 21 years old and you think that they quit trying to grow. And you meet them at 60 and they're still 21 years old. They haven't matured. They haven't grown up. They haven't become any, they haven't gained any insight from all that they've been through. And, and that's very sad that a person could stall too early. What Paul is saying here is he, he describes his life as one that goes on. And, and it's things, so he has them in four participles. That's an ing type word. It's a verb with an ing at the end. And here's what he says a, a mature person does. All right. The one who is, has a life which matches who Jesus, what Jesus Christ has done for them, who is trying to be a person who pleases them in all respects. Here's what he does. First of all is this. He bears fruit in every good work. Maturity is bearing fruit. All right? It's, now, bearing fruit, and again, we got really fast. Bearing fruit has two sides to it. Two sides. They, they fit together, but there's two sides. On the one side, bearing fruit has to do with character of Christ being worked out in your life. You look like the Lord. All right? That's the abiding part. You know, the, the fruit is born there because you're abiding. The fruit of the Spirit is all these different things. But that fruit, we don't have time to spend a long time on that, but that fruit has a purpose. And that fruit has a purpose to bless other people. It has as its purpose to, to 
influence other people and build up their lives, to change their experience, right? So in the book of, or in John chapter 15, he talks about abiding in Jesus so that the fruit's born. But later on, he's going to say this, that you didn't choose me, I chose you. This is part of understanding the will of God. I chose you and ordained you to go and what? Bear fruit that remains. The thought there is it's a fruit that is apart from me. It's something that happens beyond me. There is a a part of this which is my own character, but that character should be there in order that you are built up in Jesus Christ. And being built up in Jesus Christ, you then go on with him apart from me, not connected to my character. Does that make sense? He says, here it is. Um, this is what, what maturity looks like. It looks like a person who every, everywhere they're going, <laughs> it's a broad thought, everywhere they're going, this is happening. They're bearing fruit. They are showing the character of Christ in such a way that people are blessed. That's the first thing. That's a mature Christian. They're just bearing fruit. Right? Second thing, all right, he says this, They're increasing in the knowledge of God. They increase in the knowledge of God. A real Christian, Christian maturity is nothing apart from God. There's no, no, I get mature and I'm over here and I can be separated from God. No, the whole purpose of, of the maturing process is to bring you closer and closer and closer to the one who claimed you. So you have to know God to get started on this, but as you move through all this, as you are living through life, you're coming to an ever-deepening understanding of who he is. Third thing he says, right? This one usually doesn't come up with the I-N-G in it, but it's still in there because it's kind of clumsy in the English. But you could say being strengthened. Being strengthened with might, the inner man. right? Unto, he says this, Unto, this is what you think, strengthen with power. And we all want to be strengthened with power, right? I, that's what I wanted when I, was, I started coming to the Institute. I wanted to learn how to, how to walk with the Lord in such a way as I could be powerful. And I had it all worked out. The power had all to do with what I'm doing tonight. You know, I could be a powerful preacher. <gasps> but the power God's concerned about here isn't maturity issue, isn't whether you're powerful there. Because... Most of us aren't going to preach, right? It's not oriented towards doing miracles or something like that. What is the power? How about this? It is the power to endure, to face life as it actually is. Because he uses two words there. One word is steadfastness. The other is patience. It can be, t- it can be translated a lot of different ways. The first has to do with facing difficult and unwanted circumstances. Life is tough. Things go wrong. The car breaks. You get sick. Storms come. Economies collapse. Uh, all kinds of stuff. You just What is it? It's just one thing after another. That's the path of life. And if you determine to glorify God on this earth, you bring in a whole other pack of difficulties that you have to face. Think what Paul went through. In order to build the church, he had to go through it. The first word has to do with being strong enough to keep on going. The strength is to 
to not let that knock you off the, off the base. The second word has to do not with circumstances that are difficult, but people are difficult. I don't know if you've noticed that. But um, I always joke with students that if you wanted to be a saint, I would go to a cave too. Once you get into a cave, there's nobody in your way. And do you know how few commandments in the New Testament are given that don't involve somebody else? If you just remove everybody else, what do you have to do? I guess just rejoice. Rejoice that there's nobody there. Right? But that isn't life. That isn't life. In doing the will of God, if the whole purpose of God is to build the church, and I've been brought in and I'm going to be, going to be part of that, what's that mean? It means I'm going to be, have to deal with actual people because people are what you build the church out of, all right? And if I'm going to be involved in that, I'm going to be involved in taking people who were just like me, who lied and were immoral and were proud and were selfish. And were, I'm just telling you, I... I might have looked okay on the outside, but boy, I knew what I was bringing when I said, you know, I've got sin. It has to be cleansed. But if I'm going to help you, if I'm going to help other people, I'm going to have to face back there like that too, right? Now, uh, again, if you, if you want to go over that word, those words, there's a, there's a good book by uh, Graham Scroggie. It's a, ser- a series of messages he gave at Keswick Convention. And he's, there's a, one that's actually where I started studying many, many years ago, these prayers. And he's got a long section in there about the difference between patience and, and long-suffering is the way it, it is in the King James. But he says this about at one point. He said that um, the first is an answer to cowardice in life and despondency. The second is an answer to vengeance in life. Now, he's, that's not all he says. He has a lot more to, to fill it out. But see, that's where we get. People are against you. you want, what, what, is, what, what do I want to do? I want to fight back against people. He says, no. God, he wants, here's a mature Christian. He's been strengthened with might in the inner man so that he doesn't fight back. And he's been strengthened with might in the inner man in such a way that he is able to keep on running even though he's in the winds blowing against him. Right? That's quite something. Now, there is a word that is stuck in Paul's sentence, hangs between that and the next one. The next one is giving thanks. All right? Giving thanks in all things. Stuck between enduring patience and giving thanks is the word joyously. And uh, the truth is, the commentators can't decide, should it be that you are to do this, you are to endure with joyousness, or that you are to joyously give thanks? It could go either way. The grammar allows both, and it's up in the air. All right? I don't know that you have to make the decision, although I don't think Paul meant both. He meant one or the other. But the whole stream uh, kind of fits together. This is a mature Christian. 
If you put those two together, as they are fighting through life, and life involves a lot of things that don't go the right way. You ever notice that? No matter how well you plan, they don't seem to go the right way, and you have to keep, keep readjusting. It's a constant experience of readjusting and, and, and facing it. So that while they're doing that, they're not just getting through. They're not just, you know, stiff upper lip type of approach. They're joyously doing that. Because they know the end. That's the way Paul ran the race, right? That uh, After he got beat up and all this, thing, Romans, he says this, I, I'm convinced that the suffering we experience here isn't worthy to be compared to what's ahead. Don't even think about it. And he had a lot of problems. But don't think about it because of what's out ahead, all right? Go there. All right, on the other hand, our thanksgiving ought to be joyous. I was thinking about that. And again, we don't sing from the hymnal very often, but there's an, a hymn that we, we sang back a long way, and the line came to me, so I had to get this out because it's a long time since I sang it, and I want to get it right, all right? It is our, it's hymn number two. You don't have to turn there. But it's hymn number two. It's, it's um, give thanks to, let's see, sing praise to God. That's the first line. That's the one I'm not going to go to. But I think in this last line of the hymn, he sums up what Paul's saying here in these last two parts of Christian maturity. It's, this is what he's, he's saying. This is a German. So you know that Germans are, are very uh, sour on their way of, they always look at the dark side of life. He does. So anyway, if you look in the hymns, they're all how to, get, how to die, you know, how to, to die in the Lord. But anyway, he's talking about life. So it starts off, I know, a little bit. It says, thus all my toilsome way along, all the toilsome way along, I sing aloud. His praises, right? He's acknowledging this. This is not the, it's not the most fun I've ever had. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing aloud his praises. That men may hear the grateful, there's the thanksgiving part, the grateful song, my heart, my voice, excuse me, my voice, unwearied, that's the patience part, unwearied raises. Be joyful in the Lord, my heart, both soul and body, Bear your part to God, all praise and glory. Now, that's what Paul's getting at. Now, how is he described in Christian maturity? Christian maturity is, number one, bearing fruit. Constantly bearing fruit. My life is always to be, that's what's important about my life, is what difference I make for that day in my experience. Second thing is what? I get to grow in the knowledge of God. Third thing, what? He's a person who's been strengthened in the inner man so that he keeps on running, runs with endurance, the race that's set in front of him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And then finally, he is one who is filled with thanksgiving in the whole thing. Okay, that's, that's the prayer. So what are we going to do about it? All right, what are we going to do about all that? Well, that's Paul's description. And one of the things that he was going to say to the the Colossians, which is so wonderful, is this. That's available to everybody. One of the problems that comes up when people get in there and say, this is the way maturity goes and it's not the Lord's way, it tends to isolate. There's little groups. If you're the, if you're the ones that know the inside stuff, <laughs> if you have the right gifts, you're the, <laughs> there's always this, this group in there. We can get to the heights, but the rest of them might be out there. Here's what Paul says. I want everybody to have this experience. I want all of you, every one of you. He's talking to the whole church. The smart people in the church, the not-so-smart people in the church, the the personable people in the church, and the not-so-personable people in the church, the gifted and the ungifted. 
says, I want you all to know this. All right. The first thing I want you to get a hold of is this is the purpose of God for every one of us. Every one of us. So how are you going to get there? Okay, what are we going to do about it? This is where I don't want everybody to go home and say, that was good. I don't care if it's good. We have to do something about it, right? And so what do we have to do? We have to trust the Lord concerning this. We should do the same thing that Paul did. If you, if you want to grow, what should you do? Well, follow the prayer. Go to the Lord. Go to your Father and ask Him to fill you with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom. And understand, see, the prayer is already there. You don't have to even come up with words. Ask Him to do it. And you don't have to go any further than that because if He does that for you, the rest will flow. That's the way Paul saw it. If a person gets to the place where what God is doing dominates their thinking and they understand that and they've come to that place, then those other things will flow because they will make the right decisions and they will desire to, or they will have a life that matches Jesus' salvation. They will try to please him. And then all the fruitfulness, that's, that's the outflow of it. But we could all come to it, this and then walk away and say, yeah, well, that's good. No, we got to come to the Lord. When we saw at the very beginning that we had a problem with the guilt of our sin and there was nothing we could do about it, what did we do? We came to him. We entrusted ourselves into his hands. We asked him to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. What should we do with this? Because it's real important in this day that we live like this, right? That we actually grow into real Christian maturity. That we become those that can fulfill the purpose of God. If we're going to get there, what should we do? Come to him again. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. And ask him. Ask him to fill you. With the spirit or with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, well, let's pray. While we do come to you for that for ourselves. But we thank you for the things you're able to do, and we thank you for the way you long to be trusted. We thank you for your pleasure in faith. And we're coming to ask you to to do that deep work in all of us, Father. We pray that for ourselves tonight here but for all of us here, that we will be filled with the knowledge of your will. That we'll be dominated by that. That we'll have the spiritual wisdom and insight to live in a manner that is worthy of the great salvation we've received. So we thank you for what you'll do, and we're trusting you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.